remember at the time when I came to Christ in the early 70s, 1972, there were a lot of Christians who had come to the Lord, new believers, during this 60s movement, this Jesus movement. There were a lot of interesting things that were going on. And one of the things that people did is they would greet each other with a finger like this, which meant one way. And it was kind of cool. So Christians would do that to each other. And that was their way of communicating to each other that they were believers. And so it was symbolic of the fact that Christ is the way. And it's interesting, even in our scripture this morning, there was reference made to the way. And so in the early church, the way became a description of or a reference to the Christian faith. And I kind of like that, the way. I think I've mentioned this before, there was a Christian group during the 60s and 70s called The Way. Christianity is the way. Let's look at a few references in Acts where it's mentioned about the way. Let's go back to, hold your place in 24 and go to Acts 9-2. And we're going to look at some scriptures that talk about Christianity being referenced as the way. Acts chapter, we've already been through this, but let's take a look at it again. Acts chapter 9, verse 2. And asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them and bound them to Jerusalem. So Paul here on the way to Damascus was looking to gather up Christians and arrest them for their faith in Christ. And of course, it was referred to as the way. Even the non-believers, even before Paul came to Christ, was referring to it as the way. The next one is in 1826, still, we're still in Acts, referring to the way. Chapter 18, verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we see the way of God being explained more accurately. And then in chapter 19, verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. And then Acts chapter still in 19, verse 23. And there, about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. So we see here that the Bible in the, in the book of Acts in the early church referred much to the church as the way. Now in John chapter 14, verse 6, we don't need to turn there, but Jesus was speaking to his disciples, was explaining to them that you know the way, and they didn't quite understand the way and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it's interesting, the way leads to what? Truth and life. So Jesus is the way. He is the door to heaven. He is the good shepherd. He is the light of the world. And so as we enter into the way through faith, we find truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then you will also find life. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So spiritual life comes through the way. There's no other way. There, there are a lot of people would say there's many roads to God. Many roads, many religions lead to God. I mean, in fact, Christianity has kind of received a bad rap because they've, people have said, well, Christianity is so narrow-minded. They say they're the only way. Jesus is the only way that leads to heaven, that leads to eternal life. And the fact is true that Jesus is the only way because Jesus is so much different than any other religious leader, religious personality that ever lived. And we don't want to criticize other religious leaders and people and religions, but Christ is the only way. He's the only one that overcame death. 
through his resurrection. He's the only one that lived a sinless and perfect life. And he's the only one that became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's through his, the shedding of his blood that we have remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in the Old Testament, they made these sacrifices, animal sacrifices unto God for the covering of their sins. It didn't remove their sins, but it covered them. It appeased God for a, a time. The time would to come was when Christ appeared on the scene. And as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us of our sins and removes our sins. If I were to tell you, the, if you were heading to a certain destination, and I told you that there was only one road to get you to that destination, you would be forced, compelled, if you wanted to get to that destination, to travel along that road, right? And within a certain time frame. And if the, if the conditions were dangerous and there was only one way to do it was through this road or this pathway or this highway, then you would be forced to go that way because it was the only way that would lead you to your destination. And the same is true in Christianity. There is only one way to God. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Two plus two always gives you a four. And there's no way around it mathematically that you can come up with two plus two equals three or equals five. It equals four. And there's a certain order in the universe, and God has set the, the universe into an order, a mathematical sense, if you will, a scheme. And so in the spiritual realm, it is the same way. But Christians need not to criticize other people of other faith. What we want to do is encourage them to come to Christ, come to Jesus. Just as the multitudes came to Christ, we invite people to come to Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. It's interesting because the way leads to God and his righteousness and holiness. Religion, in so many ways, is about trying to become holy, trying to become righteous, trying to become good. And we've said that that is futile because you really can't become good in your own efforts. No man is made righteous through the keeping of the law. So we're not made righteous through our good works or our our really dead works or our works in ourselves, human works. The only way that we're made righteous is through faith in Jesus, right? And that faith in Christ leads us to righteousness and holiness. We have been set apart as pure and holy before God. And what an awesome thing that is. Now, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 9, if we could. Talking about the way that leads to eternal life. And by the way, in Acts 4, while you're turning to Hebrews in chapter 9, in Acts 4.12, it says, There is no name given under heaven among men that we can be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. I mean, if there was another name, then that would be made known, but there is no other name under heaven. Hebrews chapter 9. And here we have, we don't know if it's the Apostle Paul, whoever the writer was of Hebrews, is explaining to the, those that are reading it, to the Hebrews themselves, of the fact that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the old way of doing things was done through these animal sacrifices, as we mentioned. And they did not lead to the way of perfection in accordance to the conscience. And so they lacked. Now, Paul said, remember Paul said, I am blameless, or I was blameless according to the law. Now, in, the sense, in that sense, he kept the law pretty fully, but yet in the area of conscience, he was guilty. So you can act religious, you can look pious and holy, but it's really what's going on in the conscience, on the inside, right? On the inner person. 
And that's the part that needs to be cleansed. That's the part that needs to be made righteous. The Jews were trying to establish their own righteousness through the keeping of the law. And it looked good on the outside, as Jesus said. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. So it is in the heart. It is on the inside that God is concerned primarily about. And it is out of the inside that the outside is birthed. And good works come forth. So let's look at Hebrews 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way, there's that word, the way, into the holiness of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So here we have a reference to the tabernacle that was erected in the wilderness under Moses. And in this tabernacle, the Levites, who were the acting priests, were the ones that ministered to the Lord and the ones that performed these animal sacrifices for the covering of the people's sins. Once a year, the high priest would go into the holiest of holies, the most holy place, and there sprinkle blood upon the altar, upon the Ark of the Covenant, there at the mercy seat. And there, there would be the covering of sins. And he would be in the most holy place, which was a very dangerous and precarious place for a person to be in who has yet to be made holy, yet to be made righteous. But God permitted that one person who is a representation of the one person who would go into the heavenly realm and represent us, and that, and that person is Jesus himself. So when the high priest was back in that place, it was a dangerous place because he was in the holy of holies, the most holy place, where the Shekinah glory, of, Shekinah glory dwelled. The only place on earth where God dwelled on the earth was they called it this blue flame or the shimmering mist that dwelled between the two cherubim above the mercy seat where the blood was placed. And so there the high priest would offer the sprinkling of blood upon that altar for the covering of the sins of the people. But Hebrews goes on to explain that it did not cleanse their conscience. In other words, they continued to feel guilty about their sin. So the blood of animals cannot take away sin. Now look at verse number 9. We're still in chapter 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So the wonderful thing about Christianity and the wonderful thing about the blood of Christ, it makes us perfect before God. Our conscience becomes totally cleansed and clean, and now we are without guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So a new way was opened through Christ, a new way to obtain holiness, purity, righteousness through faith in Jesus. And we know that when Jesus said, as he stretched out his arms, on the cross, or that he was stretched out, and as he breathed his last breath and gave up his spirit, he said the words, it is finished. It is paid in full. I've completed the task. I've given my life for the removal of sins. His body and his blood has cleansed us eternally in God. And the Bible says the temple curtain was rent or ripped from the top to the bottom. God opened up the way in the temple for man now to enter into relationship with God through Jesus. That's what Hebrews is about, access to God through Jesus. I'm surprised so many people don't talk about Jesus, even as believers. And yet he said, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can gain access to God, the Father, except through me. I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. You know, if anyone thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believes in me out of his innermost being would flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, who was yet to come. So the world needs Jesus. 
more than anything else, and the way things are now in the world with all these terrorist threats and realities that are going on, Christ is the answer. He always has been the answer to people's needs and to the fact that he is the only one that leads us to eternal life. Praise God. Life that never ends. As John said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Praise God for his life. Now go over to chapter 10 in Hebrews, and let's start with verse 1. For the law having a shadow, the law was just kind of a, a little peek into what was to come. It didn't bring righteousness, but it gave us an idea of how this righteousness would come. So it was a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, and can never with these sacrifices, which they offered continually, they continually made sacrifice, animal sacrifice to God. It was a continual ongoing process. Why? Because they continued to sin, and they continued to, to feel guilty for their sins, and to be condemned by their sins. And year by year, they would make these animal sacrifices, and, and we're talking primarily on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is, is the, the, the day that the high priest would go into that most holy place in the temple or in the tabernacle. But would make those approach perfect. That's the key. Would, would this perfect them? Would this make them righteous? Would it make them holy, these animal sacrifices? And the answer is absolutely not. For then they would not have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. You see, if the animal's blood had removed their sin, then they would no more have a conscious sense of their sins. They would no longer feel guilty over their sins. But they did, because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sin of the world. And so they remained in this religious cycle of feeling guilty about the things they were doing. You know, it's like Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And how true is that about human nature? It's, it's a paradox. It's an enigma. The things we really want to do, sometimes we just don't. And the things we don't want to do, we end up doing. It's human nature. It's the, it's the flesh. And you can't please God in the flesh. You can't please God in you trying to do good works. They fail. And this blood of, the, of these animals, these precious animals, couldn't take sin away. And they kept feeling guilty over their sin. But God knew there was a better way coming. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You see, the religious person always is talking about their sin and the reminder of their sins and their wrongdoings. And then they perpetuate that on other people and condemn them for their sins. That's exactly what the, the Pharisees were doing. They were condemning the people, the blind leading the blind preaching guilt upon the people for their sins, but yet the Pharisees themselves were full of sin and guile and hypocrisy. They were just like the people they were leading because you cannot be perfected in the flesh. It's impossible. It only leads to self-righteousness and hypocrisy and condemnation. But there's a better way because the Bible says it reminds them of their sins for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take sin away, but Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus took the sin of the world away so that that guilty feeling could be removed, so that consciousness of our sins would be taken away. So if you're really progressing in God and growing in the things of God, you're going to have a better understanding of righteousness, and you'll be less reminded of your sins, not more reminded. 
You won't have a consciousness of your sins, but you'll have a consciousness of who you are in Christ and that you've been made righteous and made holy in Jesus and that you have a new nature that is perfect in the eyes of God without sin. And we are called to walk in the new nature according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can overcome the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And his spirit is in us. And he doesn't condemn us. He brings life, righteousness. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what is the kingdom? It's this invisible realm where there is righteousness. That means a person is made right. And there is peace, which the world needs so desperately. Peace in their mind, peace in their hearts. And there is joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a feeling of joy, of jubilee, a happiness. There's great happiness that comes from knowing Jesus. Amen? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Our joy in God becomes our strength, our inner strength. The secret to the Christian life is joy. I really believe that. And the one thing the devil would try to do is steal your joy. But the the word brings joy in our lives, amen? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now jump over to Hebrews. We're still in chapter 10. Let's go over to verse number 19. Therefore, brother, because of this, because now we know that the old covenant is gone, it failed, it's done away with, it's obsolete, it's no longer functional. The new way, the new covenant, the way of Jesus offers this. And look at it here, it's beautiful. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, By a new and living way. Everybody say that. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. When the veil was rent in the temple, it represented the veil of Christ, his flesh being ripped. That's why when we celebrate communion, we celebrate his bodily death, right? His body being crushed for us, dying for us, being broken for us. And then the spilling of the blood is where the cleansing of sin is. And in the scourging of Christ, when he was whipped time and time again, over 39 lashes by the Romans, that blood that was spilled out on the ground, the Bible says, with his stripes, with his scourging, we are healed. Amen. So there's spiritual healing, right? And then there's physical healing in Jesus. And as believers, we can partake of both, the spiritual and the physical, and the emotional as well. Peace of mind, peace of heart. Okay, well, let's go back to our story in Acts very quickly. We're in Acts 24. Paul, now, Paul's an amazing guy. He seems to get himself into a lot of messes, you know? Sometimes in life, we find ourselves in situations we wish we hadn't gotten into, right? How did I get into this situation? How did this happen to me? What did I do to make this happen, you know? And a lot of times it happens so fast, and all of a sudden you realize you're in a hard situation. Paul found himself in a lot of difficult situations, and this is one, again, he has been protected by the Romans, they were going to tear him up in Jerusalem, pull his body apart, pull off his arms, his legs, kill him. There was a plot against him. Forty men took a vow that they would kill Paul or die themselves. Well, the Roman commander, Lysias, heard about it, and he protected Paul through a regiment of 200 horsemen. And these people that were wicked trying to kill Paul were prevented from doing so. And he was taken from Jerusalem up to Caesarea, which is right on the coast. I've been told it's a beautiful city. And there he was under protection in Herod's house. 
And he was waiting for a trial to occur. And he came before Felix, the Roman governor, who was going to hear Paul's case. Every time I hear that word Felix, I always think of Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful. It's just a funny name, but that was his name, Felix, and he was the Roman governor. And he was going to hear what Paul had to say about what had happened to him in Jerusalem. Remember, these Romans, they didn't have any clue about the Jewish law and the Jewish ceremony and their religion. They didn't understand it. The Romans were pagans. They worshipped all kinds of gods. But they didn't worship the Jews' God, Jehovah. And they didn't understand the scriptures, the Old Testament. So when the Jews would talk about their customs and their ways, they were rather perplexed by the whole thing. They didn't get it, you know. And a lot of people, if you try to talk to them about Christianity, they don't get it. Why would you go to a Bible study? Why would you go to church? Why would you read your Bible? What's in there that's of importance? They don't understand it because they haven't been enlightened. Their eyes haven't been opened. And the Romans were like that. So when the Jews would talk about their laws and customs, the Romans would be like, I don't know. I don't get it. I really don't know what you're talking about exactly. Verse 1 of chapter 24, very quickly. And now after, the, after five days, Ananias, remember Ananias was the one that had Paul struck on the face. And Paul said, you whitewashed to whom? He was very upset because they hit Paul for no reason. So Ananias, probably he's more vindictive now than ever because they couldn't get a hold of Paul, couldn't kill him, is coming to Caesarea to give testimony against Paul. And he came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. Now this guy, Corey, is an attorney. They bring their high-class attorney, Tertullus, who's an orator, a great speaker. Many attorneys today are good speakers, right? They're very convincing in a court of law. They have like a silver tongue in many ways, and they can convince a jury or convince people of guilt or innocence according to who they're defending or prosecuting. So they bring this hotshot guy with them, right, to speak against Paul and evidence against Paul. And so he made his speech... Tertullus, he brought forth his evidence against Paul. And notice in verse 5, it says, For we have found this man a plague. Wow. How would you like to be referred to as a plague? I mean, we hear about that Ebola, Ebola virus, which is certainly a plague in, in Africa. But they're referring to this man as a plague, right? Which is a really derogatory term. He's a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And what did we say we called that sect? The way. The way. The way of the Nazarene. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Right? That's where he was raised, in Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. And this sect, as they called it. They called, and today they, you would use the term this cult. This religious cult. You know, you think about that Waco, Texas and... David Koresh and certainly was a, a cult leader, and the people tragically burned in fire. Well, they were looking to Jesus and this and the people that followed Jesus as a cult. That's the way they spoke of it. But it certainly wasn't a cult. It was a new way being birthed, a new life that Jesus said you could experience in him. Verse 6, and even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to the law. So now they're saying Paul wanted to profane the temple. That means blasphemy, really, against God in the temple. And we know Paul certainly did not do that. And yet they falsely accused him, and don't forget that they falsely accused Christ as well and said lies about Jesus. That was the one thing that Jesus was accused of, of doing, is committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, lying against God. 
calling himself God, which Jesus did do. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him. It wasn't just that he was preaching a new message, but he was calling himself God. And they hated him for that. They couldn't believe that this could be God standing there in a human form. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt alone. God became a man. That's the mystery of Christianity that no other religion's ever done. God himself took on a human form. And here they were contending with God and accusing Christ of blasphemy. They were doing the same with Paul. But Paul got to defend himself. Do you know Jesus never defended himself? He never, in, in that last trial that lasted six hours, he never defended himself. But here Paul, remember Jesus was perfect without sin. Paul in his humanness is going to defend himself. And we said there are people, as believers, we have a right to defend ourselves. And so we, we get Paul's defense in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, he answered, insomuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, Felix the governor, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? He went to worship. He didn't go to blasphemy. He didn't go to criticize the Jews' Jews' religion. He went to worship God. And for that very act of worship, he was, a, he was attacked. Remember, he, he talked about the, the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees were cool with that, right? They believed in the resurrection. And the Sadducees, because they are sad, you see, didn't believe in it, and the two were fighting. And they blamed Paul again for causing this dissension. When the true preaching of the gospel goes forth and the power of God is being established, there will be great turmoil around that because the enemy will be stirred up because he cannot stand the power of God. So Paul goes on, and we're not going to read it all. He gives defense to his lifestyle and his belief system. Verse 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way, remember we read that in our opening, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Here's what's very important. Paul said, I still worship the same God you worship, the Jews worship. What was his name? Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh. They worshiped Yahweh. And the unknown God that Paul pleaded to in, in Athens, to the people, the, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, and Epicureans, Stoics, to the unknown God. That unknown God was Jehovah God, Yahweh. Paul worshiped that God, and he was saying, I still worship that God, and I still believe in the scriptures, the, the law and all the scriptures and the prophets that were written before. I'm not dismissing that. I still believe in the Old Testament. As Christians, as believers, we still believe in the Old Testament, and some of the best promises you'll find in the Bible are in the Old Testament. Amen? For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace to give you a future and a hope, you see. So God has great promises that are found throughout the entirety of the scripture. And Paul said, I'm not dismissing the Old Testament. I'm worshiping the same God. But God has made himself known in the form of a man or a personality, and that person is Jesus Christ. And he's asking for all men to repent and to come into faith in Christ. That's all Paul was preaching. Same God, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father existed the Son was manifest. The Spirit was working amongst them. Hallelujah. The Holy Trinity. But they didn't want to receive that message because why? They were convicted of the Spirit by their own sins. They were still living over that, in that old covenant of condemnation and judgment. And yet Paul offered them the words of eternal life. 
a new way of living, a new experience. They wouldn't have to reject this Old Testament scripture, but then they could embrace the new as well. The Messiah, the one that had been prophesied. Well, we're going to conclude with this. So we see after Paul made his defense, we get down to 22, and, and when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, now Felix, because of Paul, is starting to understand this Christian sect, the way, more accurately, had a better understanding of it, he was kind of like confused. Well, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem so bad to me. I don't, I don't see why we have to incarcerate this man. I don't think he's done anything wrong. But yet he was under pressure from the Jews, right? And so he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes back, I'll make a decision on your case. I'll decide on this trial that Paul was being tried upon. And he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. So he knew Paul. I think he had a great sense that Paul was a, was a good man, a godly man, and that he had done no wrong. But he couldn't let him go. So he kept him incarcerated until a decision could be made. He, well, I don't believe he was really man enough to make the right decision and let Paul go because Paul should have been free. But what he did do is he let his friends, Paul's friends, come to him in jail under house arrest or wherever he was there, and to visit him and provide for his needs. So Paul, in one sense, was free. In other sense, he was not free. The irony of it is Paul stayed there for two years under this arrest in Caesarea, having access to his friends and his needs provided, but still not being released. And we read that in the scripture that Felix was hoping that he could get a bribe from Paul. If Paul could come up with some money, he could pay his way out of prison. Isn't that interesting? That's, that goes on today still. People take bribes, right? Government leaders take bribes. Business people take bribes. Money paid out, blood money, so that a certain act can be done. But Paul wouldn't do that. I don't know if he didn't have the capability or just he wasn't going to do it anyway. And so then we see here now that Felix is going to be removed and a, a new governor is going to come on the scene. And in the last verse there, Festus will be the new individual that Paul deals with in his situation. So in these chapters here, there's quite a bit of dialogue concerning Paul and his explanation of his belief in Jesus, but also his dissension with the Jews and their religion. And it continues into the Roman Empire, ultimately with Paul going to Rome and being a witness for Christ in Rome to the Romans. And Christianity was birthed in many ways, not just in, in Jerusalem, but in Rome as well. And so even today in Rome, you, you, know, you have the Vatican, and, and you have Christianity very strong in that area, all due to Paul's witness, according to the Spirit of God. <laughs> 